Is capitalism the cause or the cure to poverty and human suffering? Is political polarization the problem, or is it the growing cancer of contempt? Leadership is sorely lacking in Washington at a time the American people are looking for inspiration and a path forward. Drawing on history, social psychology, behavioral economics, and the Council of Ancient Wisdom, Arthur Brooks answers these questions and shares lessons from his extraordinary American journey on this week's edition of Therefore What? Therefore What is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What. We are thrilled to have in studio today best-selling author, social scientist, economist, and head of the American Enterprise Institute, as well as one of the most profound and brilliant minds in America, and Utah's favorite Catholic, Arthur Brooks. Arthur, thanks for joining us in the Deseret News Studios today. Thank you, Boyd. And you say that to all the Catholics on that, don't you? <laughs> no, only only our true favorites. So we're, we're really glad you're here. We know you've had a uh, uh, quite the experience here in the state of Utah. You've been down at BYU. You uh, were at the summit with Senator Lee and the opioid uh, focus today, and uh, later on today, you'll be with the Sutherland Institute at their annual gala. It's uh, it's always a better day in Utah when you're here. We appreciate it. I love being here. It's always a better day for me when I'm in Utah, too. I also spent the morning with the governor and his cabinet and briefing the governor uh, and his cabinet on, on, on a bunch of different communications issues. What a thrill it is, partly because Utah is succeeding. It's it, People have a tendency to think, yeah, nothing in government works, everything's terrible, because they're thinking about Washington, D.C. But, you know, the founders, of the, you know, the framers of the Constitution, they they didn't want us to be Washington-centric. This is an intensely state and local country. And when you look at what's going on in a lot of the states, it's, it's very encouraging. And, and Utah's ground central for what can happen for things to get better. I'm really proud to be here. And it's really great to have so many friends who are succeeding. Yeah, I, I think Utah is going to be solely responsible for making federalism sexy again. Right? Yeah, no kidding. I don't think it'll be sexy again, but at least it'll be satisfying and <laughs> happy. <laughs> the laboratory democracy may actually work in the end. Exactly right. right. Well, that's great. Well, I, I know one of the things that you're, you've been focusing on in your podcasts uh, and a lot of your work at AEI is this whole idea of bringing America together. Uh, I know that's part of your uh, work with Sutherland Institute this week here in the state. Uh, uh, obviously, there's a lot of political polarization going on out there that people see. Uh, give us your assessment. Where where are we really as a country? Well, it, people are justifiably alarmed by the fact that people are, are sort of being encouraged by leaders to hate their neighbors. This is anathema to the American experience. It's interesting. I just saw there's a, a fantastic group that works in both the UK and the United States that had a called More in Common that came out with data this week that showed that 93 percent of Americans don't like how how polar we become and how we're being pushed apart as citizens. Now, 93% of Americans are not middle of the road politically. They're not centrists. You know, the, the, these are people with real hardcore opinions. But what they understand is that it's not right to hate your neighbor. It's very interesting. You know, when I when I all ask audiences, I'm, I, I'm very much looking forward to to speaking for the Sutherland Institute's gala. And this will air after I've done that, of course. But uh, one of the questions I'm going to ask the audience tonight is how many of you love somebody with whom you disagree politically? It's going to be a hundred percent of the hands, yeah. and, and except for people who are not paying attention or still eating their salad or something, and it's very important for us to remember 
that, that the relationships and of love that we have with each other, that's way more important than politics. It's way more important. And when, when leaders are driving us apart, that's extremely alarming. So I, I have to say that my answer to your question, Boyd, is sort of twofold. Number one, it's a, it's a good news, bad news story. The good news is that Americans don't like the fact that we've become so polarized. The bad news is we have become very polarized. But therein lies an entrepreneurial opportunity for a new day. And, and you know, it just might just might start in Utah. I know on your your podcast, uh, which have really taken off across the country, uh, you've you've talked about how do we how do we disagree better. Uh, I know you're moving towards you know where where is love in the land? What does that fit in there? Give us a little bit uh, insight into your podcast into what kinds of things you're addressing uh, as it relates to disagreeing better and what the solution is. Yeah, thanks thanks for asking. The podcast is a really exciting thing. It's the first time I've ever done a podcast, and it had an incredibly creative title. It's called the Arthur Brooks Show, right? It's like I, did you I, spend hours on that? Well, I had to. Hire Saatchi and Saatchi oh, okay. to figure that one out. You had to pay him a million dollars, but hey, worth there you every are. penny. Worth every penny, absolutely. And, and the way that it's working, it's going in, in seasons. And the seasons go in eight at a time that they're themed. And the, the theme of the first season is really appropriately how to disagree. The point is not to disagree less. The point is to disagree better. Why? Because disagreement is a form of competition. Everybody listening to us knows that competition brings excellence. And that when you get rid of competition, you get mediocrity. You get stagnation. And that's what happens you know, in economics. That's what happens when you have a one-party state, and that's what you happen to have in the competition of ideas when people don't disagree. The problem is when you disagree so poorly that the competition doesn't work right. When you're trying to shut other people down, you don't allow them to come to your campus because you disagree with them, or you you won't actually show up and listen to them if they, if you think that they're going to have an alternative point of view. Or even worse, when you only listen to media or read newspapers or watch television stations where you already agree with those people, you're not participating in the competition of ideas. So so the message is that I'm talking about a lot. Disagree more and better. And then America will be will be a lot higher quality in the way that we talk about issues and we'll all get stronger. Yeah. I, I think Reagan said, you know, America is always at its best when it is a nation of big ideas and open, even roiling debates that yeah. compete in the marketplace of ideas and, and then you move forward. Yeah. When you think about it too, you know, there are people that you disagree with a lot that, I mean, I mean how long have you been married, Boyd? It'll be 30 years in two months. Congratulations, man. I'm going on uh, it'll be 27 years next month for me. And I mean, you, you and your wife, what's your wife's name? I can't remember. Debbie. Debbie. You and Debbie disagree, right? Occasionally. Yeah, yeah. How, <laughs> Frequently. Yeah. And, and but, but the point is that you disagree about things that you both really That's care right. about. You and, and even when you get angry, it's no it's not an existential threat because anger actually is a very interesting fact that anger in marriages is uncorrelated with separation and divorce. The problem is when anger metastasizes into something that's much worse, which is called contempt. You, 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 you mentioned it in your introduction. Uh, contempt adds disgust to anger. And you basically start saying to somebody that you love or somebody that you should respect or your fellow citizen, your coworker, God forbid your spouse, that you're utterly worthless. Nothing that you have to say could possibly be worth listening to. Well, that's a, that's an expression of contempt and that, that will ruin relationships. That's the really big deal. You know, anger and disagreement. Are you kidding? You know, couples that are digging in and paying attention and having a, you have, how many kids you have? I can't remember. Five. Yeah, man. Oh man, it's great. It's beautiful. And you know, when you have the that four, many the kids. The four grandkids make everything else worth it, right? You have four grandkids? <laughs> four grandkids. Oh, I'm so jealous. You should be. <laughs> you know, there's an old saying, I'm a Catholic, as you know, you mentioned that before. There's an old Catholic saying that 
that grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your children. Yes, <laughs> that's absolutely true. Yeah. <laughs> My kids are still in the killing phase. So I think they're almost out of danger. Okay, good. And remember, restraint always works. Restraint is a very important quality. It's a virtue. It is indeed a virtue. But again, you know, look, you, you disagree in the relationships that you hold dearest, and we should disagree with each other as a nation, and we should disagree vigorously, and then we should have dinner together and say we love each other. So let's drill down on that contempt a little bit. Uh, I've always said that the the contempt problem, uh, more than the political polarization problem, uh, and as you described, if I feel like that person is utterly worthless because they disagree with me, that gives me license to blow up their Facebook or melt down their Twitter feed or call them whatever or get in their face at a restaurant and still go to bed at night and feel okay about myself. Yeah, yeah. That's a classic thing throughout human history is that you dehumanize other people. And there are a couple of ways that you do that. Number one is you act anonymously. One of the biggest problems that we have with social media is that people behave anonymously and as such they behave worse. They dehumanize others and they've effectively dehumanized themselves. So one of the things that I recommend to my friends in public life, uh, so for, for you know people who have a, your, your well-known guy in media or a pop, for politicians, you know I, I recommend that they not interact with anybody ever who's anonymous, and they never act anonymously in any capacity in their lives. You know, it's very important to do that such that we don't dehumanize each other and we don't actually, we don't start, get into the habit of, of behaving contemptuously. It's really corrosive for ourselves. It's actually worst for ourselves. There's a funny set of studies that show that when we treat other people with contempt, we tend to get more depressed uh, and people find us physically less attractive. So if you, you want other people to think you're handsome and beautiful and you want to be happy, then you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. okay to get angry. It's okay to disagree. But treating other people as if they were worthless and especially doing so anonymously is really, really corrosive to, to your own well-being. Yeah. And that, that anger and that angst that you, you talk about building up uh, in the, uh, the book, the, the Light Between Oceans, talks about this, this man who had been you know, persecuted and treated poorly by all the members of the town because of his religion. Uh, and, and he forgives them. And his wife says, how can you, you know, how can you do that? How can you forgive these people? They've been awful to you. And he says, you only have to forgive once. Yeah. To keep the anger and resentment, you have to recreate it every day. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. You know, there's the, 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 the Buddha, actually, was, was quoted once as saying or is remembered as saying that I, with good, I conquer evil. Right. And I conquer the, you know, he actually says, I conquer the evil man with good. And I thought that, I was like, huh, why would you want to conquer? Why would the Buddha, I mean, to be talking about conquering another person and using a great virtue instrumentally. And then I realized what he's talking about is that the evil man is me. And, and my job is to conquer me, me. Yeah. with good. That's, that's really the, it turns out to be the important point. And by the way, that is the central insight of, of the Christian religion as well, that you and I try to practice this every day as Christians. That, that we, we have to die to self. I mean, that's a deeply Christian principle. And so, and so that means you don't just spontaneously die of old age to self. You got to conquer Boyd. Boyd is at war with Boyd, you know? <laughs> and, and to the extent that we forget that as a society, when we stop declaring war on our worst impulses, we don't discipline ourselves. And as such, we won't find the good. And, and therefore, we won't find the happiness that we actually deserve. Very interesting. I was talking uh, with George Will yesterday uh, on this podcast, and uh, he raised an interesting thing in terms of the the influence of the presidency, uh, just in terms of uh, of influence, the tone that it sets right. uh, for the nation. Uh, and and one of the things that I know you uh, you address often is how do we get to this aspirational 
leadership. Uh, I mean, the American people want to be led. They they have that in them to take us somewhere that matters. Um, and they're, they're kind of wandering around. Neither political party really seems to be putting forward a, an aspirational leader. G- give me your definition of aspirational leader, and then how, how do we get there? How do we get more people there? Yeah, so aspirational leadership to, means to aspire to something. And, it, and it's, it's obviously you aspire to something that's better as opposed to aspiring to something that's simply bigger or different. So I, you know, it doesn't, nobody says, you know, I aspire to be a worse person. <clears throat> you know, I aspire to be poorer in 10 years than I am. Now, that's not a typical aspiration. So let's just dispense with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So to be an aspirational leader is to basically show the lead something better. It's over those mountains, there are green fields. That's what aspirational leaders do. Now, unfortunately, you can help people. You can make people aspire to that through destructive or constructive means. And in a time of populism, in a time of negativity, in a time of polarization, you tend to get leaders that will vilify other people and say that we can aspire to something better if only we vanquish the other side 100 percent. Well, that that is insane. You know, the whole it's actually un-American in this way. It's funny when I talk to, you know, big groups of members of Congress, I'll say, how many of you wish we lived in a one party state? It's like zero hands. And, you know, it's zero hearts, too. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it, OK. So if you're grateful for not living in Cuba or Vietnam, if you're grateful for not living in a one-party state, you just told me you're grateful for the other party. It's crazy, man. And so an aspirational leader is not somebody who's aspiring to win everything and the other side losing. That's actually not the green fields on the other side of the mountain. It's one in which we actually make progress without getting 100% of what we want. You know, I don't want my wife to feel like she's walking out with getting nothing that she wants and I got everything that I wanted. That's not that's not even winning. Right. That's actually that's, that's the that, ultimate losing. It's the, the ultimate end. losing for sure. And and that's the the kind of aspirational leadership that we need. You know, people who understand that we need to work together that we, it is, this is not just compromise. It's it's the flexibility that comes from having mutual respect for each other and warm-heartedness for each other as a country. That's not what we have right now. That's not what we have at the leadership of the other party right now. And you know one of the great things that one of the reasons I love coming to Utah is because people understand this here. There's a principled understanding. Now, it is a conservative state. It is a red state, traditionally understood. But I see nobody who's falling in line with the polarization that comes from even the Republican Party today around here. I talk to people who are really alarmed by the, the integrity of the 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 spirit of love and brotherhood that actually should permeate our principles. Why? Because, you know, you know, to be a Utah conservative, as far as I'm concerned, is to use conservative means to meet liberal ends. It's to serve our brothers and sisters at the margins of society. It's extraordinary to me. One of the things I've always admired about about uh, the LDS church, for example, we're not supposed to say LDS anymore or Mormon. You can't say anything anyway. So the, the thing that I've always admired about it is the largest private welfare system in the world without relying on government. Why? Because human initiative requires that we serve each other's brothers and sisters and lift each other up and see each other as mutually beneficial. That mutuality is really key to it. That means that when you have an environment where I win, you lose is, gonna, is not going to be consistent with the philosophy that you see in a place like this. My, this is my bottom line. I'm I'm just trying to butter you up, Boyd, and our listeners, um, not all of whom are in Utah, of course. And my, my bottom line is that the way that traditionally I see conservative being play, conservatism played out here, that is, I think, the right model for America. And that can be the basis of conservative aspirational leadership. And we need people to see this and understand this. And that, that can be a great resurgence for our movement. Uh, and, and on that point, you know, you, you talk about uh, poverty. Uh, you talk about human suffering. 
uh, and, and it is. It's it's our job. They're they're not the government's brothers and sisters. They're they're our brothers and sisters, right. fellow fellow travelers. Uh, I know you've got a, a very exciting new project about pursuit and about this whole idea of of people starting to have this negative view of capitalism and how does it play into poverty. Tell us one, what was the inspiration and, and where are you headed with Pursuit? The Pursuit is a movie. It's a documentary film and the trailer is actually coming out the day that we air. Uh, the movie will be on you know video on demand services and such and, and even in, in uh, theater screenings in, in the spring, spring of 2019. Uh, the Pursuit is basically the pursuit of a better life for people at the margins of society. And the reason I call that is because that is truly my aspiration. You know, the, the reason that I, I write and think a lot about capitalism and free enterprise in my, my career is not just because I'm some, you know, cold calculating economist. And I think that, that ca- ca- capitalism is super interesting. I, you know, I don't really care about it's just a machine. Right. Capitalism, like social democracy or monarchism or theocracy, is just machines. These are the way that people organize themselves. But what I learned in my, in my 20s was that, that, that the free enterprise system is the only system ever devised that can pull people out of poverty while you sleep. And, and again, this is not just a, a contention. Two, by, by the way, you know, you and I are more the same. You're a little younger than I am, but we're more or less the same age. Two billion of our brothers and sisters have been pulled out of poverty. Two billion since you and I were kids. Wow. You know, nobody knows that. You know, 70% of Americans think that poverty's gotten worse. 80% of starvation level poverty has been destroyed since you and I were kids, since the, since the late 1970s. 80%. And that means, you know, two billion of these people that are God's children. They're like us. And and how did that happen? It happened because of, you know, globalization, which people denigrate today, and free trade, which is in decline, alarmingly, because of property rights and rule of law, and because the American culture of entrepreneurship and free enterprise spreading around the world. This is a gift. This is a miracle, unprecedented by world historic standards. And so for that reason, I think, man, I'm dedicating the rest of my life to this. And that's what this movie is all about. It goes in search of people that are building their lives. It starts off in a slum in in Mumbai in India. It starts off in a slum uh, called Dharavi. It's an incredible place. It's two-thirds the size of Central Park. There are uh, between 700,000 and a million people living it. That's like 400 people living in your house. That's the population density of this place. And you go there and you go, ah, how depressing. But it's not. People are on the make. There's 10,000 small industries and all the kids go to school. And it's because free enterprise entered that country in India that, that they're on the rise. And we walk through that. Then we go to other places. Not so good. We go to Barcelona. Not so good. We go to a little town in Kentucky that has hasn't had work in a long time. And these are places that are more prosperous, but where people are depressed. People are taking drugs, where you have these pathologies. And then we go to a place in New York City where people have been homeless and they've been addicted to drugs, but they're working and putting their lives together. Once again, the commonalities are when you're working, when you have purpose, when you have meaning, there you find hope, there you find happiness. That's the pursuit. So the pursuit is how do we how do we lift up the world starting at the margins of society? And when we find the answer, it turns out to be the answer to our happiness too. Like always, as the gospel instructs us, do you want to find your own bliss? Turn to the poor. Because they have the answer. You know, Utah has long been heralded as one of the most upwardly mobile uh, yeah. places on the planet. Uh, and the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has, has done some really fascinating things in terms of self-reliance, uh, programs that teach entrepreneurship and business skills and how to get advancements in work and, and degrees and financial management plans. Uh, interesting, just at the uh, the G20 Faith Forum, uh, which precedes the, the G20 Economic Forum next month, um, 
uh, Elder D. Todd Christofferson uh, of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles talked about how this teaching of these principles, these economic principles and entrepreneurships had made a difference in just four South American countries. And in a matter of just two years, over 7,000 businesses have been started. 42% of the participants who were members of the church and non-members of the church uh, had increased their education, started to earn more money, had started to reduce their debt. Uh, and so it's, it's again, that community, it's, it's the, the perfect combination of civil society and, and free market economy uh, that really lets everybody, especially starting at the right. margin. And of course, the, the building blocks and all this are a healthy society, not just civil society, but family life, mm-hmm. which is really, really critically important. And one of the things that I'm thinking about a lot and, and that um, I'm talking about with my friends at the Sutherland Institute, which, by the way, your former, your former president <laughs> I mean, of the Sutherland Institute, <laughs> what a great organization. You know, everybody listening to us should support the Sutherland Institute because this is the basis of an intellectual movement that can ride alongside the social movement to make America yeah. as great as it can possibly be. And, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking about um, is that I'm talking about the Sutherland Institute tonight is, is love. You know, it's funny. You know, it's, it's like people never talk about love. Like, you know, come like, on. Come on, man. That's not that's not what an economist should talk about. But you know what? Even economists need love. It turns out all of us need love. It's the it's the building block of a, of a good and happy society, but also a successful society. One of the things that I've been looking at recently is kind of blowing my mind, Boyd, is when I look at the likelihood that people in their 20s in America today are romantically in love. It's a, a third lower probability than when you and I were in our 20s. Wow. It's crazy. When you look at it, and again, you could say it doesn't make sense. I mean, young people are more emancipated. They're more liberated with all the bad things that come along with that. But it turns out that when you don't have any constraints, when there aren't any rules, it turns out you're less likely to fall in love. And, you know, I tell you, that's the basis of happiness. And building a family is a prerequisite to being successful in so many areas of life. If you want to know how to build a, a culture where people are upwardly more, where people do earn the success, I'm going to find Moms and dads and kids who are living in intact homes. I mean, 100% of the time, there's just no other basic building blocks of that. So this isn't a seamless garment. This is inseparable. We need love so that we can build families, so that we can build communities, so that we can build economies, so we can build a great nation that can be salt and light for the world. So so fascinating. Uh, we felt here at the Deseret News that one of the, the real con jobs that took place during the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, in fact, our one of our uh, writers, Christian Sagers, wrote this beautiful piece on that the real con in all of it was when the American people decided that sex was a commodity, not a sacrament, and that it's just something that can be taken and used. And, and you think of the conversations we missed during those hearings. Uh, families were actually having conversations about underage drinking and about premarital sex and about how do you develop the real kind of love that will give you a foundation for a strong family and a stronger community. Yeah. No, I mean, there's a lot that I think that in the end, the the really terrible Kavanaugh hearings are going to wind up being instructive to the American population. I mean, it, look, we are are a nation of social entrepreneurs and the ultimate enterprise is to reinvent America over and over and over again. We're in a time of crisis and that was kind of the, the worst moment in the culture war. You know, and people, by the way, people listening to us, they're on all sides of this thing. It's not like, you know, some of Boyd Matheson's listeners or, or all of them think that Judge Kavanaugh was innocent and Dr. Ford was. No, no, no. Yeah, Look, people are all over the place. We're all super conflicted on this. The thing for us to keep in mind is that it wasn't just about Judge Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford. It was a it was a culture war set of issues. It was about how men treat women, which is important. And it was about how we conduct ourselves 
and this is a moment for introspection. These low points are, are things that all of us should be able to turn into real opportunities because in crises, that's where opportunities lie. Uh, so I want to hit two other things in, in uh, as you release the, the trailer for, uh, for the Pursuit. The pursuit. Uh, one is this whole idea of per capita GDP versus per capita hope, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I just love. And then also the, the beautiful scene uh, with you and the Dalai Lama uh, as he says, you know, we, we need to be friends with capitalists. What would, tell me about that. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time. The, the whole movie doesn't take us in India, but the, we're in India a lot. And India is a place I go very often. I mean, I go, I'm going, as a matter of fact, the, the week after next. And I'm going to see His Holiness the Dalai Lama. For those who are not you know, paying too much attention to Tibetan Buddhism, and I guess not all our listeners are, are thinking about Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama is the leader of the Tibetan people and is the sort of the most visible Buddhist in the world. He's also, according to public opinion polling, if you trust that, the, the most respected religious leader in the world today. And, and so I, I go and see him a lot. We're working on it. We've written a little bit together, and, and I've interviewed him a number of times. Um, when I go to India, I'm excited by the trajectory of hope, the fact that people are incredibly hopeful because as a one of the poorest countries in the world in our lifetime, it's become largely a middle class country. It's extraordinary how much progress there's been and people underestimate how important that has been to that country. So we in the movie The Pursuit, we talk to a guy who, who says, look, it's not about per capita GDP. It is about the idea that my life can be something better. It is about per capita hope. And it's kind of a poignant moment. The end of the movie, however, is something that I think will probably appeal to a lot of our listeners here. You know, it's easy when you talk about free enterprise and capital to, to think it's really all about money. And, and, and furthermore, there's this, I, I, I try to disabuse everybody of this notion that capitalism is great for rich people and bad for poor people. The truth is that capitalism is phenomenal for poor people and it's kind of dangerous for the rest of us. Why? Because it's this generating force of, can be, of materialism and greed because it makes so much wealth so quickly for people. And so it's very easy for all of us listening to this to do work, 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 earn, 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 earn. And that, that is not the secret to a happy life. So we end up the move, in the movie going up the mountain, literally, to see the Dalai Lama at his home in the Himalayan foothills and talk about what is the secret to a happy life. And he says, look... I've learned a lot about capitalism. I've learned a lot about initiative. I've learned a lot that you have to use your life and you need a system that helps you to be productive. But what we really need is love. And there's no substitute for it. Capitalism and work and earning and money are not a substitute for love. And that's, that's, that's where we, that's where we leave the picture. And it's a, you know, it's a, Beautiful friendship that I have with him, and, and it's kind of a nice moment in the movie, too. So I want to I hit a couple of things as we come down the home stretch here. Uh, one, as we as we strive to get to the, these higher conversations, better disagreement, uh, leading to, to better results for everybody, uh, the media obviously plays a, a very important role uh, or has a, as an influence point, for sure, on all of us. Uh, the Deseret News, uh, we, we try to go boldly, nobly, and independent. You know, bold, strong opinions and, and great journalism. Uh, noble in that it's elevating dialogue and shaping important conversations and that it's independent, that it's, you know, really checked and and moved. And yet in so many places, particularly the national media, uh, it seems to be disconnected. So what what is the role of media and and how does that ever rebound or are we on a a downward trajectory? It's a a real problem today because in particular because people trust the media so little today. You know, it's actually... It's weird. You know, we're, we're sentimental always. We always say back in the old days when Republicans and Democrats liked each other, they never liked each other. You know, it's not like, yeah. I mean, I go back to, you know, James K. Polk and, you know, he's 
He was a complete grifter. You know, his fights on the floor. Totally. The worst. You know, James Buchanan and, you know, the Kansas Nebraska Act. One congressman actually almost beat another one to death with his cane. I mean, he's like, we're not doing that. Right. So it's not like things were so great in the, in the old days. And, it, you know, and, and when you and I were kids, people didn't didn't really trust the press that much either. Right. right. So so it's not like things were always wonderful, but things in point of fact can be better. And all, all the, the times that we're in right now where it's extremely polarizing and, and emotional journalists are not immune from that. And and what, what has effectively happened, particularly in Washington, D.C., is that the president of the United States has set himself up as a foil to the media. And he's been referring to the media as the enemies of the people, which, by the way, that has a that's really freighted history. As you're a media guy, you're like, oh, nobody, who talks that way? That sounds pretty bad. But it's also that's what a lot of dictators throughout history have said. Not that Donald Trump is a dictator. He's not. But he's used a turn of phrase that's really, as they say on our college kids say, that's a trigger. Right. It's a trigger. <laughs> and so a lot of the result of that is that he, I mean, he's a very smart guy and he'll set people up as his enemies and then they will play to form. Right. The most important thing for the media to do to help regain trust and to, to, to attenuate this adversarial relationship with the president of the United States is to stop taking the bait. You know, to stop going after that. I mean, he's he's basically flooding the zone, right? <laughs> totally. I mean, he's basically saying you're the enemy, you're the enemies of the people. And then they say, well, then they attack him. And that's not the media's job is to attack the president of the United States. And and furthermore, it makes them look bad and it's lowering uh, public trust in the media by doing that. All right. So I have a uh, a wall of fame at my house. Yeah. So we, I have autographed baseballs from a lot of the great players over the years. Uh, but more important to me and to my family, uh, we have autographs on baseballs of people who've made a difference in our lives. So teachers, coaches, You're a big authors. baseball guy, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, Who was so your favorite team growing up? Uh, Cubs. The Cubs. How come? I'm, I'm miserable Cubs. Because I could, I could get WGN radio at night. Oh, <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, for sure. Because it was an AM <laughs> station. And, yeah. That how about Giants. Giants? <laughs> that was my dad's favorite team. My dad grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. Is that right? Yeah. And, and you're rooting for the, you know, the doomed Cubs yeah. year after year after Cursed. year. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> one, one year of redemption, but uh, I think we're back, but back to curse. It's a sacred brotherhood, to, you know, because you never, you're never not a Cubs fan. That's right. It's it's a kind of a true blue. It's like faith in in a you know in something that you know will <laughs> hope springs eternal it's in the spring. Of, yeah, it's like the Sinai Peninsula, but wandering for a lot more than forty years. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, if you were having someone sign a baseball, someone who uh, who is most influential, or who is someone if you were starting your wall of fame. Who's what's the first autograph you'd go get? There, there's so many people that I've admired over the course of my life, um, and there are people who have influenced me in a lot of different ways at different times. You, are you talking about a you're talking about a politician? No, you're talking about a sport uh, a Any, sports anyone, figure. Anyone who's influenced you, an author, a teacher, a coach, a mentor. You know, my great mentor was a man named James Q. Wilson. You know who he is, of course. James Q. Wilson was the most influential. And I know I'm a total nerd. So in nerd alert, uh, James Q. Wilson was the most influential political scientist of the past century. Uh, he taught at Harvard. He was a conservative who was victorious at Harvard, which is fantastic. By the way, I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't know, you know, I'm You're going to Harvard. There. I'm yeah. heading to Harvard. Uh, uh, I, I feel much summer. better about Harvard. <laughs> yeah. Or you feel maybe worse about me, you know? <laughs> no, I have confidence in you. <laughs> I appreciate it. No, and Harvard's, Harvard's a great place. And, and one of the reasons that I you know, want to go there is my, my hero, my intellectual hero, James K. Wilson was there. Everybody knows him for certain things. Like, for example, most people know about something called the broken windows theory of policing. That was Giuliani's secret when he was mayor of New York 
to really getting crime under control. That was created by James Q. Wilson. But his main thing that he did, his most important book that everybody's got to get and read is called The Moral Sense. It is that people are imbued, they're endowed with a sense of basic decency and morality. It's on the human genome. You know, and I thought when I read that, before I ever knew him, I thought, man, I wish I could do something like that. I wish I could use the tools of intellect to bring people to a more edified, you know, higher state. Of, they could love each other more on the basis of ideas and not just not just religion, you know, because intellect has got to be created by God, too, I That's figure. Right. Yeah, so, absolutely. And James Q. Wilson really showed me how that could be done in that. And so and he's influenced me as an intellectual, as a scholar, more than any other single person in my life. He also hired me as president of AEI. He sat in on my dissertation defense when I'm finishing my doctorate, which went very poorly. And, and then as an assistant professor, when I wrote my first book, he wrote the foreword. And then when I came to be president of AEI, he, he was on the board of trustees. And uh, I spoke at his funeral when he died in 2012. He would be the first guy on my baseball, James Q. Wilson. All right. And since I, I haven't been able to convince you to run for president yet, we'll, we'll save that debate uh, for another day. I appreciate that. One, you know, one quick note on that, Boyd. You know, it's funny about politics. And I know that people have been bugging you to get into politics forever. I've heard it independent of your people say, you know, the great guy, you know, who should run for XYZ. Boyd Matheson. I, I know. I know. He's great. It's my idea, man. Fantastic. Total integrity. Uh, he's happy. It's the problem is he's happy. So, you know, I was in, I was in central New York. It was teaching at Syracuse University, and you know there was this open seat in Congress, and a bunch of Republicans came, and they said, you know, I've been thinking about it, and you're the right guy. Will you run for this seat? And so, you know, I'm very flattered. I went home and I told my wife Esther, I said, honey, you know, some guys came to me and asked me for run for Congress, and she says, well, you know, as Catholics, we don't believe in divorce. <laughs> that's a great answer. <laughs> Subtle. Enough said. Subtle. Right? Yeah, that's right. Short conversation. Indeed. <laughs> that's Indeed. Great. Therefore, what? Well, the, the last segment uh, we always leave for the, the title of the program, which is Therefore, What? Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I take that. I'm going to pass the ball to you today uh, to give us what's, what's your therefore what. People have been listening to us for a half an hour now. Uh, what do you hope they take away? What's the therefore what for our listeners today? Therefore, the solutions in our country really start with each one of us. You know, it's funny. There is a tendency to feel really alienated and to feel like each one of us doesn't matter. But the truth is that the solutions to polarization and contempt and anger and hostility to hatred in our country, there's really only one solution to that is that each one of us creating an apostolate around us of love. And so therefore, if you remember one thing that I say, it's please figure out a way to answer the contempt that you see on social media uh, in the political conversations that you have at school or at work, or God forbid, even the contempt you see around the Thanksgiving table, to answer that with love and kindness and compassion and warm-heartedness. And in so doing, you will be the beginning of the next great era of American history. Arthur, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Boyd. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What.